Hey everybody, Tavis here, and welcome back to another episode of Hydrocarbon History. Now, if you're watching on YouTube, you may notice that I look a little bit different, a little bit goofier, goofier than usual. That's because I went out to Pagosa Springs, got a little sunburnt, but if you're not watching on YouTube and you're listening to the podcast, well, come on over. There's more to look at than my goofy mug. There will be plenty of other visuals and plenty of figures we'll be going over to enhance your understanding, so I do recommend you just give YouTube a quick search for Rare Petro and you'll find this episode. So if you missed the pilot episode last week, I definitely recommend that you check that out as well while you're there. Basically, I'm using hydrocarbon history as a way to sort of break down some historical case studies to see what we might learn from the past. So let's get started, shall we? Let's kick things off with cup of tea. Cup of tea. Ever heard of a London fog? Well, it consists of Earl Grey tea, a little bit of froth milk and vanilla syrup, and it's quite the tasty concoction. It's called a London Fog, and while partially whimsical in structure, it does establish the premise for this episode, so let me take you on a trip way back to the 1700s. What partially inspired the topic for this episode was a pirate history book I'm actually reading right now. It's called The Republic of Pirates, and it spent a tiny portion of one chapter talking about the city of London in the early 1700s. At this point, London had been well-established for quite some time, and property was finally transferred from being owned by the church to the people. Unfortunately, the Georgian era of London was riddled with poverty. During times of good grain yield, only about 10% of the population was starving. On the bad years, that number was closer to 40%. Most well-off people assumed that those who were poor were poor for a reason. You know, things like their habits, such as gambling or drinking. Of course, this wasn't correct, but in order to combat that, they were often pushed into workhouses where they would be assigned menial tasks, things like winding spool onto a thread because they didn't have the machines to do that yet, and often these people were worked to death. Those who lived in their own homes also struggled to afford the simplest things, so children were often out of the question. Babies were frequently abandoned to churches where, when they became old enough to walk and talk and hold things, priests would rent them out so they could be used as chimney sweeps. Thanks to their small, flexible bodies, they were especially well-equipped for this task, but this almost always resulted in some sort of respiratory or lung damage, kind of usually the development of cancer, or if they were extremely unlucky, immediate death from falling down a chimney or other terrible, terrible ways to go. Overall, the 18th century was incredibly trying for most people living in it. Of course, humans always find ways to overcome tough situations such as the 18th century, so... That takes us to the Industrial Revolution, where they were able to up their output of goods and the diversity of goods as well. Around the 19th century, the population of London was 2 million and would eventually climb to 6.5 million by the start of the 20th. London was finally beginning to blossom, but at the cost of the air around the city. Remember last week when we talked about indoor air pollution? We'll go ahead and uh, scale that up to smog covering an entire city. Coal became the dominant energy source, and only became more and more popular in use, especially when coal pricing halved from 1820 to 1850. This made it cheap and abundant, so people were going to make use of it. Unfortunately, the type of coal that did become cheap was soft coal. Remember, this isn't too far into the industrial era yet. I mean, of course, people are starting to use machinery to accomplish their tasks, but things like mining were still conducted by hand, so you can't make it all that deep and all that far, which leads to the development of soft coal. Soft coal covers both lignite and peat, which are the two lowest grades of coal that can be found at relatively shallow depths, so accessible by humans, and it only forms at about 200 degrees Fahrenheit. 
This was about the only accessible coal, again, people, and even though it is the worst grade, they had no other fuels to use. Even in modern times, communities that farm this soft brown coal are usually energy-starved from any other fuel source. From 1820 to 1900, national consumption rose from 22 million tons to 176 million tons. I mean, things are looking grim, but this begs the question, how did it get better? I mean, I was in London back in 2015, I think it was, for a high school trip, and your air quality didn't look so terrible. So something must have changed. Turns out that there are three potential development factors. The first, expansion. The very thing that was leading to their concentrated pollution was their ticket to other nearby areas. The use of coal led to the development of machines that would generate significant horsepower, and steam engines eventually were able to take people further away from these cities and establish lines that enabled greater commuting distances. What does this mean? People now have the option to move to surrounding suburban areas, and population density, of course, will decrease. So even if the amount of energy consumed does not change, it was much easier on people's lungs as the smog concentration decreased. The second partial reason includes the introduction of the Public Health Act in 1891. Basically, those who were emitting too much smoke ran the risk of running into significant financial penalties if they didn't switch to better quality coal. Although it is more expensive to purchase these higher quality and harder to extract fuel sources, it benefits the air quality around them. Sound familiar to today? Natural gas is a much cleaner fuel source than coal, so that is why we see modern phasing in that direction. Now, hold your horses. I can already feel some of you clicking in the comments section below just to type, oh, you can't just ignore the transition to renewables. Well, I tried to be very selective with my word choice. I said fuel source and not just energy source. We observe more industrial activity now than we did back when London was covered in smog, but we are not powering planes, trains, or heavy industrial machinery with solar or wind energy. While I'm not ultimately stoked on what appears to be the infancy of a carbon tax, the financial incentive did push people to stop burning this dirty cheap coal, and the environmental health benefits of burning higher quality coal were immediately observed. One of the last potential reasons revolves around something that I kind of already hinted at. Natural gas. Industrial applications relied heavily on coal, but heating and cooking could be just as effective when using natural gas. You see, unlike last week's episode that focused on lots of unventilated wood cooking, London at this point had ventilation. They had good homes, but they used dirty coal for heating and cooking. This shift was incredibly dramatic, as only 2% of people had gas cookers in 1892, but by 1911, that number had exploded to 69%. Again, making use of more carbon-pure fuels helped decrease the amount of local air pollution. All of these factors contributed to the immediate success of the environment and public health. At the peak of the worst air quality, 1 in 350 people would die from bronchitis. To put that into perspective, if you filled Denver's Pepsi Center to the brim, 57 people would be dead from bronchitis-related causes at that time. Definitely an interesting fact, but let's dive deeper in some of the data, shall we? Here's a historical collection of the air quality for Delhi, more recently in the red, and London in the blue, back to 1935. But we started talking about things from the 1700s, no? Let's slide this back. <laughs> Whoa. This is astounding. It peaked at 623 SPM in 1891, which is still well over 100 SPM worse than Delhi today. In 2016, London's air quality was magnitudes better at only 16 SPM. 
The measurement of SPM is short for suspended particulate matter and is simply a mass of solid particles in micrograms per cubic meter. 16 SPM would be roughly equivalent to 16 particles of baking soda found in the volume of 1,000 Nalgenes. That's pretty damn good if you ask me, especially if you consider that back in Q3 of 2019, the UK generated 39% of its energy from fossil fuels. Virtually all of that 39% was generated from natural gas. So, what exactly am I trying to highlight this episode? I'm very good at doing this. Throw a lot of data, throw a lot of information, but what did we learn? Well, I'll tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we should stop burning coal, that's for sure. I like to look at energy sources based on two criteria, energy density and emissions. Energy density is a measure of just how much energy you can get out of a certain volume or mass. Coal is incredibly energy dense, especially the higher quality portions of it. It is a solid rock of hydrocarbon bonds that can generate lots of heat and energy when burned. Renewables don't measure up to that energy density. I mean, it's even kind of difficult to compare the two, but basically, you won't be extracting rare earth minerals used in renewables with mining equipment that runs off of solar energy stored in batteries. Not quite yet, at least. So coal's strength is clearly lots of energy in a teeny tiny little package. What does that cost? Well, in comes the other criteria I mentioned, emissions. While, say, a wind turbine is not as effective as releasing energy as a little bit of coal, it is certainly much cleaner in terms of emissions. Perhaps not when manufacturing these renewable energy systems, but purely from an operating perspective. What happens? Well, again, that's the lesson I'm trying to highlight with this episode. Energy use is not equivalent to environmental damage. This is a weird myth that we have been conditioned to believe. Everything on my scale of energy has its strengths. Coal? Great for industrial machinery in early London, but it made sense to switch to gas stoves for smaller applications like in-home heating and cooking. Today, some buildings in London make use of solar energy to supplement some of the power they generate because, well, that is the strength of renewables to supplement some of the demand that would have come from fossil fuels. London makes use of many different types of energy because all energy has its strengths and weaknesses. After all, even if we can supplement some of our fossil fuel with renewable energy, it still won't provide us with a physical substance that we can refine into more dense fuels or products. Again, we have to get away from this idea that energy use leads to environmental damage. In order to further cement that idea, I'm taking you back to another figure. This chart plots air quality versus GDP per capita, and the size of the circles equate to the population. I've chosen to look at these two variables because it sticks to the theme of air quality, and GDP per capita is a great way at measuring a country's developmental success and can be compared pretty closely to energy consumption per capita. Thank you to Our World and Data for having such quality graphs and information. The leading country in terms of energy consumption per capita is Qatar. Here they are in the upper quartile of the air quality index while still maintaining a very high GDP. Here's the United States with an air quality index rating of 96%. Remember talking about the Dominican Republic in that last episode? They consume a decent amount of energy and still have an air quality index of damn near 100. While energy use is not always equivalent to environmental damage, it can be. Look at China and India, for example. Massive and highly industrialized countries that consume lots of energy. The air quality is rather poor because they don't have the same environmental protections that the United States has. This is why energy use does not have to be equivalent to environmental damage. It's because the United States chose to. This is why I will always favor oil and gas that is produced domestically rather than overseas. It is far more sustainable to produce. 
Singapore isn't too far from China geographically, and look where they sit. Incredible air quality while maintaining an enviable GDP per capita. Ultimately, energy generation and use is an incredible tool. We just have to be conscious of how we consume it and what generation sources we use for which applications. Again, we learned that energy use is not equivalent to environmental damage. That's something I want to hammer into you. If you walk away learning anything from the episode, I hope that it's that. London found a way to improve their air quality while simultaneously continuing to make use of hydrocarbons. But that is about all I have for you today. So I'm hoping that you can form your own conclusions and challenge me on mine if you think you've got a good point. You can do that by contacting me for that reason or any other reason at podcast at rarepetro.com. If you are already through all of the content that we've released and you're sitting there watching the calendar, watching the clock, waiting for that next Rare Petro release, be sure to go to our website where we've compiled all of our favorite websites onto a useful links page. It will direct you to all of the information that we use to make a lot of these studies, reports, whatever that we do put out. So <laughs> go ahead and take a peek and who knows, you might accidentally learn something. Again, this has been a reasonably sunburnt Tavis Killian with another episode of Hydrocarbon History through the Rare Petro Network. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody. <laughs>